people, it seems, have always been attracted to utopian visions of the future. And by utopian, we mean grand, sweeping visions where all evil is eliminated and where the world is at peace, where all enemies are subjugated. Right? There's a vast utopian literature, a whole series of novels. Whether it's Marxism's classless society, or it could be some modern political vision where all the needs of men are met by the state or in some other way, or it can be a religious vision. The vision of ISIS, for example, where there's a world without infidels. Everybody wants a world without infidels. And this lure, it seems, has always been with us. And there are, I think, two factors which tend to heighten this desire to see the world remade and to see the world purged of evil. One is being a beleaguered, oppressed minority, such as Jesus' disciples surely were under the Roman rule. The oppressed, it turns out, dream with greater urgency than the rest of us. And they dream of liberation. And the second factor here, which leads to these sort of utopian visions, is usually some apocalyptic vision of the future. And again, by apocalyptic, I mean, you know, literature in the Bible like the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, highly symbolic literature that shows battles and and chaos and good destroying evil, the world being set right. And certainly the disciples had this. They were a beleaguered minority. And they had this in the Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord. All of these prophecies in the Old Testament, full of this imagery, promising the punishment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous. And then, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, we have John the Baptist appearing. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. And what does he say? He proclaims that the great day of the Lord is at hand. He points to Jesus and says he has his winnowing fork in his hand and he's ready to gather the wheat into his barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. The day is at hand. And it's into this combustible situation that Jesus steps and he announces the day is indeed at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived. And yet, as his ministry progresses, he's He's met with more and more resistance. He continually refuses to take up the political stance of the zealots. This is an anti-zealot parable. He doesn't appear at all interested in destroying the hated Roman overlords. 
This is strange, really. It's like visiting the Christians in Syria and not mentioning the Assad regime. Here's Jesus. Doesn't want to take on the Roman Empire. Doesn't want to touch the elephant in the room. So you can imagine with a little effort how confused the disciples were, given their background. If the kingdom has come, if you're announcing that the day is at hand, then why is there still evil? Why are we still poor and oppressed? Why have our opponents not been destroyed? Where is this promised new world order of the prophets? And it's to that string of questions that this parable is answered. Those are the questions that this parable is designed to answer. So we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, a parable unique to Matthew. I want to make two points. Very simply, the parable in verses 24 through 30, and then the interpretation in verses 36 through 43. So the parable, and then the interpretation. So verse 24, he put another parable before them. The them here is the crowds. Verse 36 makes that clear. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The sowing process is underway already in the ministry of Jesus. We saw that last week in the parable of the sower. The kingdom has come. But something Unexpected has happened on the way to the apocalypse, on the way to the utopia. The kingdom meets rejection and resistance. Again, the parable's addressing this, this quandary. You can see the resistance in verse 25. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. This was actually not a hypothetical situation in ancient Palestine. There are actual reported cases of this type of agricultural sabotage. And there are actual laws designed to prevent it. It was a primitive form of bioterrorism. And at first, it's impossible to tell what happened. But in verse 26, once the plants come up and they've borne grain, there's enough differentiation to see the weeds. And at that point, you get a conversation, apparently of some length, between the servants and the owner of the field. Verse 27, they asked the master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And the master knows immediately that an enemy has done this. And so the servants say, then do you want us to go and pull them up? meaning gather out the weeds, pluck the weeds out. And in verse 29, out here presumably because their root systems are intertwined, the master surprisingly says, no. Because, he says, while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat along with them. That is you're likely to destroy good people in going after evil. It's not like we don't have a whole raft of historical precedents for this. 
Right? Crusaders are always confident that they can uproot evil without harming good people. But history suggests they're often deluded. And so the owner says, look, no, I don't want you to go after these evil people. Because you're going to end up harming lots of good people. And so the master's prescription is in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. So the kingdom has come in a really unexpected way. It's come in a form which requires time and growth and ripening. And in a way which shockingly does not destroy evil. Until the harvest. The master, notice, the master strictly forbids his disciples from removing the weeds before the end. Let both grow together until the end. At that time, the reapers or the harvesters will gather the weeds and bind them to be burned and gather the wheat into the master's barn. That's the parable. So Jesus' interpretation begins in verse 36. Last week we saw Jesus give a lengthy interpretation of the parable of the sower. He gives a fairly lengthy one here. These are the only two times where Jesus interprets one of his parables at any length. So in verse 36, the disciples, again, as distinct from the crowds, the disciples come to him and instead of asking Why do you speak in parables? That's what they asked last week. Why do you speak in parables? They asked for an interpretation of this particular parable. Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Notice in their minds, it's the weeds that need explanation. And so what Jesus does is he lists, he gives like a glossary. He lists the cast of the parable, the main actors. So he says in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Here Jesus, when he uses, this is a pregnant term in the New Testament, son of man. Jesus is identifying himself here with the messianic judge of Daniel chapter 7, the one who receives a kingdom and ushers in judgment. As the son of man who sows the seed and who later directs the harvest, Jesus is ascribing here in this parable to himself prerogatives reserved exclusively for God in the Old Testament. It's Yahweh who sows and plants Israel. It's Yahweh who's the the harvester and the judge of all the earth. And so there's this argument throughout the parable. It's subtle, it's implicit, but there's an argument throughout the parable for the interpretation of, the interpretation of the parable pointing to the divinity of Jesus. I sow, I reap. So verse 38 is crucial. The field is the world. You know, the history of this is interesting. Starting in the fourth, end of the 4th century with St. Augustine, there's a long history of seeing this parable as teaching something like the following. The church is a mixture of wheat and tares, which has to be simply or largely accepted and tolerated until the harvest. And the result is that the parable's been used, you know, if not to eliminate, at least to caution about the 
overuse of church discipline. It was this parable, this parable was at least part of the reason why the medieval church and even some churches today tolerate an enormous amount of corruption in their midst. After all, it's wheat and tares. You can't touch the tares until the harvest. Right? We're forbidden to deal with the weeds lest we damage the wheat. This is a fairly standard reading of this parable. I want to say a couple things about it. Three quick things. First, the church is a mixed community. Right? There are wheat and tares in the church. And we do have to exercise discipline with great care and caution. But as we'll see in a moment, that is not the teaching of this text. Because this text, secondly here, this text can't be warning us against church discipline because a couple chapters later, Jesus is going to give lengthy instructions on how to discipline people in the church all the way up to excommunication. He's going to tell us how to remove people from the church if they're unrepentant. So third, and this is the key point here, this text does not say the field is the church, right? It says the field is the world. It's one of the key things to get in this parable. The point of the parable then, very simply, is this. When the kingdom comes, it does not eliminate evil in the world. That frustrates a lot of people. But that's the point of the parable. When the kingdom comes, it does not eliminate evil in the world. The world is the sphere of the gospel's proclamation. So the glossary continues in the middle of verse 38. Jesus gives us more of the actors. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Right In the parable of the sower, there were four classes of people, but it really reduces to two classes, doesn't it? Those who hear the word of God obediently and those who don't. And so here you get two. Sons of the kingdom related to Jesus. Sons of the evil one related to the prince of darkness. In verse 39, the Lord says, The enemy who sows them, the one who sows the weeds, the sons of the evil one is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. The harvest is the close of the age. Now that's a highly disappointing view to utopians and zealots of all stripes. right? Because they always want to do a little harvesting right now. Right? And Jesus dealt with this with his disciples. Remember, in Luke 9, the disciples, they, said they wanted to call down fire from heaven on unbelieving Samaritans. And they're met with Jesus' firm rebuke. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't come as expected, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. That's the glossary. That's the cast. So let's look at the harvest itself now. Beginning in verse 40. Now here we finally get to what many in Israel thought was at hand when Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven has appeared. Verse 40. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Not now, after long delay. The Son of Man, verse 41 continues, will send His angels and they'll weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, meaning they're going to gather out the weeds. Now, again, I want you to notice something. There's a, a kind of divine majesty about the Son of Man in this parable. He's currently in the form of a servant. He's currently meeting great resistance to his ministry in Palestine. And he's currently refusing the political overthrow of his enemies or the military overthrow of his enemies. But he says, don't be confused by this. At the close of the age, I'm going to send out my angels. Right? In the Old Testament, the angels belong to Yahweh, to God Almighty. They're mediating uh, beings who mediate God's judgments in the earth. Jesus says, I will send out my angels, and they will gather out of my kingdom. He identifies the kingdom of God with his kingdom. So he's the divine Lord of the harvest. And in verse 42, the wicked are thrown into the fiery furnace, weeping, gnashing at teeth. A sign of the agony of separation from God. And then finally in verse 43, then, Jesus says, no sooner, then, the righteous will shine like the sun, which is an allusion to Daniel 12 about the resurrection of the just. So there's going to be a time when opposition is overcome, when all of our hiddenness and our suffering and our heartache will be transfigured into open public vindication and glory, but that time is not now. This is a hard word. It's not hard to understand, but it's a hard word. The end of verse 43 leaves us with the same charge we saw last week. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I just want to take a minute and ask ourselves, what is it we're supposed to be hearing here? Notice that Jesus explains a variety of elements in the parable. But he doesn't provide an explanation for everything. And what is striking is he provides no explanation, no interpretation of this in-between period that we're in. This interim period. We're, we're to allow both the wheat and the tares to grow together. Yet this is so often what we are fixated upon, isn't it? You know, we're not fixated on the end. We're fixated on the middle. I mean, perhaps with good reason. This is where we live and breathe and have our being. But we belong to the risen Christ and our life is to be ordered from the end. Usually people think, oh, we have to figure out the middle because the parable's about church discipline or something like that. See, the reason Jesus doesn't comment on that discussion is that once you understand the question the parable's designed to answer, the point is obvious. Let me repeat the point again. When the kingdom comes, it does not eliminate evil in the world. Not only does it not eliminate it, it revokes from you the authority to try and eliminate it. 
Not only does it revoke from you the authority to try to eliminate it, it commands you to let both good and evil grow together till the end. Now that counsels a sort of pragmatic wisdom, a sort of hardcore realism that is often lacking in Christians. This means that the interim, this period now, this means life is really messy before the harvest. There are people that can't deal with me- Crusaders don't like messiness. Convert or we'll behead you. Everything is always black and white, here and now, good and evil for crusaders. They do not like a world where their Lord and Master says, let good and evil grow together. Stop stop thinking that you're the grim reaper. So not only is life messy, it means it's full of ambiguity. It's full of complexity. Stop oversimplifying the world. We do this a lot. This is a plague among American Christians. Oversimplistic, trite answers to really difficult, complicated things. You know, Einstein once said, um, keep it simple, but no simpler than it is. So, we live in this time. It's ambiguous. It's complicated. You know what that means? That means for us in our public life, it's a time of negotiated settlements. It's a time of small victories and of setbacks. It's a time of seeking common ground. It's a time of seeking some way to maneuver ourselves with people who are different than us, who hate us, who are evil, who don't share our beliefs. And that means it's a time where we have to come to grips with the fact that there is evil and we can't eliminate it. It means we have to live with less than ideal social and political realities. How could the parable not mean that? Surely it means that, if it means anything. All of this, I think, is very, very important for Christian wisdom, Christian prudence, Christian realism. Now, this doesn't mean we don't fight certain battles against evil. It doesn't. But it is a caution to us to choose carefully, lest we damage good or innocent people, to not mistake ourselves for the divine reaper. We don't bring in the eschaton. Jesus brings it in. And so the the parable calls us to a kind of patient acceptance of the fact that the kingdom has come in a weak form. It's come in a provisional form. It's come through the weakness and foolishness of a crucified Messiah, in the weakness of the word of proclamation of the gospel. And so this kingdom, it's going to coexist with evil and evil people until the end. This is not moral compromise. Jesus still calls the weeds evil. The kingdom is present in spite of evil. And the evil's only going to be decisively removed at the end. 
And so this means that God, unlike Jesus' disciples, God is not in a hurry, it appears. I don't know why. This would be a hard parable to hear if you were living in northern Iraq right now or Syria. There's a hundred places where this would be a hard parable to hear. It's a pretty easy parable to hear in North America. God is not in a hurry. And God does not need our help to usher in the eschaton. And this means all utopian schemes, all attempts to bring the kingdom of God by anything but faithful discipleship in the gospel are condemned. If the point is, if the point is the kingdom of God does not eliminate evil in the world when it comes, then the application is that all schemes to bring the kingdom by anything but faithful discipleship are condemned. You know what this means? This means you need to be wary of political and social schemes of transformation. Be wary of grand visions. Grand masters, whether they be on the left or the right, you have to shun messianic politics. And American politics has a long history of being messianic politics. We don't believe in messianic politics. We're realists. We believe that politics carves out space for us to live. If Jesus believed in messianic politics, he'd have been with the zealots. He's doing something else. As our closing hymn will put it, in the interim, in this period now, it is not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy that the heavenly kingdom comes. We are sons of the kingdom. We draw our identity not from this age, but from the age to come. And the glory of that age is going to outstrip our efforts anyway. You know, this is something utopians don't grasp. Suppose you can get everything you want. All your enemies are subjugated. Your political and social vision, your, 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 even your religious vision, is imposed on the whole world. Well, it doesn't go to the heart of what we need even. Because we need the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't fix all the injustices of the past. It doesn't vindicate the martyrs. It doesn't restore the cosmos. Even the grandest utopian vision pales before what it is we are longing for. We want the resurrection of the dead. We want cemeteries emptied. We want the just vindicated. We want all the wicked tyrants and all of history judged and condemned. We want the glory of God to cover the earth as, as the waters cover the sea. What political vision can touch that? Sure, I would like to live in a better political order perhaps than, than others. Some are better than others. But we lose f- sight of the fact that all of them are radically short of what the Christian hope is. No politicians are going to empty any cemeteries. Nor are we going to empty cemeteries or precipitate their emptying 
with our crusading schemes. We look for more than what the most utopian dreamers look for. But we look for it as sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom. And that means we are to look for it with sober realism, faithfulness, and hope until the final harvest. Amen.